a lot of the way that we approach our perfume making and, and what makes us different from others in the industry is that we really start with the ingredients. You know, in wine, they say you can't make a good wine with bad grapes. You know, a chef would tell you the same thing. And so we, when Isaac and I sit in the laboratory together, we're more like a chef at the market. Hi, I'm Simon. Welcome to The Idealists, a podcast where Celia and I talk business with the realists of tomorrow. In this week's episode, we'll take you to the world of scents and perfumes, a mystery in itself with a long history dating back to the old Egypt. Also mysterious is the way today's perfumes are made. Many scents are a mix of synthetic chemicals with no requirements towards labeling. And the all-naturals out there are not quite chic, modern or long-lasting. Francis Schumach decided to do something about it. In 2012, the former winemaker started a perfume company in Amsterdam and named it after Dutch explorer Abel. Francis has a holistic philosophy, not only when it comes to the perfume's natural ingredients, but also how she runs her business. Together with her master perfumer, Isaac Sinclair, Abel is on a mission. Blend the pleasurable world of perfume with a conscious simplicity of nature. You might call it an act of proving that indulgence doesn't automatically mean a negative impact on the world. We met Francis on a gloomy December morning in Amsterdam, right after they've packed all the boxes to move the whole company to New Zealand. But before we dive into the whole story, let's go back to the start. Was there a moment in time where she flipped the switch and decided to turn this adventure into a business? I've got a very vivid memory um, of uh, calling my husband and saying, can you come and meet me at lunchtime? I was working full time at the time um, and sitting on the canal and saying, I'm serious about this. I'm resigning today. <laughs> so not really asking for support, but kind of telling <laughs> that I, I want support. Um, and that was in the very early stages. So I'd been kind of quietly working on the business for uh, six or nine months, I think. Um, I'd got to a point where I felt like it was something I really wanted to pursue. And then there was a second moment, which was uh, about three years later. Uh, and it was, yeah, like a year and a half um, into the business. And so maybe just to give context, I got pregnant with my eldest son the week after we launched oh, wow. <laughs> right. okay. the business. Okay. I had always said I don't want to have children until I've got the business off the ground. Uh -huh. um, and I was very fortunate that that happened quickly. Um, but it also was a bit of a curveball mm -hmm. as well. And so I had a moment, yeah, a year and a half after the business launched where I was putting my son into daycare. And until that moment, I'd been kind of juggling the two, I guess, with babysitters. And the question I kind of asked myself was, is this a serious business? You know, at that time, it was still running out of our apartment. Um, I was on my own with it. Uh, I had a lot of, you know, our perfumer out, you know, but the core of the daily business was just me. And it was also tough, you know, it was tough going. Um, and so... I, I did a lot of soul searching at that time where it was either I pursue this properly, you know, and turn it into something that is worth um, my energy over my children. And, you know, obviously my children still get my energy, but um, if someone else is looking after my children, then in order for me to pursue a business, I, it has to, I have to have my heart and soul in it and I have to be very proud of it. 
Um, and so that was a second moment where um, I decided to go kind of all in. Mm-hmm. So the first time we launched um, from our savings and very like uh, they say in New Zealand, smell of an oily rag. Okay. <laughs> How that translates. And then the second time it was, okay, we're going to relaunch and we're going to do this properly. Um, we sold our house in New Zealand to finance the relaunch um, and really kind of went all in, um, built a, a business plan that was around a proper business. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And how far were these moments apart? Three years, probably. Mm-hmm. My memory's hazy as the truth, <laughs> but I think yeah, the original kind of deciding, yeah. Let's say three years. So you kind of had two starts. Yeah, I, I really, with Abu, we have we have like a 1.0 and a 2.0, mm-hmm. you know, and I think people who've been on the journey the whole time, which is quite a few people, um, even our brand manager was involved in the 1.0. Um, mm-hmm. She started out as um, babysitting my son mm-hmm. and I got talking to her and said, hey, you're super smart. She was doing a thesis at the time um, and she became a really big part of, mm-hmm. you know, she's been full time for nearly four years now. Um, but yeah, it, it, the 1.0 and the 2.0, if you see photos, they look completely different. Mm-hmm. The heart and soul of the business is still the same, but um, we really did, we kind of opted in a second time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you talk about the, the heart and soul of the business, is this, um, when you talk about uh, doing running a, bi- a business holistically, um, is that also something that changed within those those years of, of running Abel? Or is this something where you see, okay, this is, this is probably never going to change because it's in, baked in, in our, into, into our DNA and, and this is, won't change at all, right? Yeah, good question. Um, I think there are things that do change. It's difficult with a business because with your own business, I think, you know, no one's holding you to um, annual reviews or performance reviews or, you know, no one's kind of monitoring your be- your behavior like you do with your team. There's no investors mm, on board. You're well, not your own for investor. Us, there's yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. And so um, in some ways, I always think one of the bigger challenges is making yourself celebrate the success along the way because whenever a a success happens, let's say, you're already on to the next thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't feel like a success. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sounds silly, but, you know, and so your your benchmark's always changing. Um, And so, like, your definition of success is always changing. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways... Um, your definition of what's, you know, holistic or, you know, the way that you operate your business, that's also always changing. Mm -hmm. I like to think for the good, you know, but, um, yeah, so I don't don't know Mm -hmm. (laughs) is the answer. Mm -hmm. I I didn't write down what they were at the time. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. that's we should all write down every year or something like that. Yeah, maybe that's also an interesting uh, space to explore that this might not come from a place of uh, rational thinking, but more of a place of intuition or yeah. a place of, you know, subconscious decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. And also Absolutely. bringing different people on board along the way will change the navigation as well. Definitely. Mm. How yeah. many people are you now? We're three. Yeah. Yeah. So we are um, three full time and we it's that's kind of a conscious decision as well to keep small and tight mm-hmm. um we have been five and we're growing um but i didn't start a business to be a manager 
so the way that we're building the business, and we do have to, we need to take on another person soon, very soon. But I found that the more people that came into the team, the less I was doing and the more I was managing. And I think uh, my footprint on the brand and the product, you know, needs to be there in a sense. And so what we do outsource, you know, I get asked a lot about, so what, what do you do internally and what do you outsource? And the way that we've been able to grow, the way that we have is we've outsourced anything that's not our core, I don't know, skill set or, you know, so we haven't built our own lab. Um, we work with laboratories um, things like that. We have distributors in all of our markets. Um, so we couldn't, you know, we, I, I I said before, we're in about 35 countries. If I had 35 people on the ground in each of those countries, um, that's a completely different business. Yeah. Right. And if you say you want to have yourself immersed in in day-to-day -day business in that sense to you know build a brand, work on the products, um, do you think as a founder this is, Again, this is something you you want to change, or do you do you want to keep that for as long as possible to to work on the core product? I want to keep it as long as possible. Hmm. Actually, um, it's my that part is my passion. Um, this year, I've spent a lot of my time out in the markets because that's super important. I think you can't give your baby to someone and say, "Yeah, sell it." Hmm. Um, so I've done a lot of that this year and. That's not my core passion. It's insanely rewarding because you travel around the world and you see mm -hmm. your, your, your baby on the shelf and, you know, beautiful stores. Um, and so it's incredible in that respect, but it's not what gives me energy. So actually, I like, I've told a few people I want to move to New Zealand and like become a bit of a hermit, you know, in a mm -hmm. sense. I want to get really close to the product again. I've got lots of cool ideas for developing. Yeah, like the more... So I, I want to get closer, actually. I don't want to get further away. And how, if, if we speak about the product and creating the product, how does the relationship with your nose yeah. look like then? Yeah, uh, very poor at the moment. <laughs> He's a total creative. I hate... Um, I hate phones. You know, we're actually both introverts. So um, if I'm not uh, picking up the phone and calling him often, we don't talk. Um, he's in Sao Paulo. But, uh, yeah, we, we have an amazing relationship, actually. Um, it's very... Yeah, I say in, in general we work really together in the sense that we have very different roles and different things to contribute you know I respect his role as a master perfumer so much you know and so he really is able to own that part of the process um, I'm not a perfumer I'm, I have no intention of training to be and so um, yeah that's really his role in our business um, and then my role is that I'm a lot closer to um The brand, you know, I know who we are. I know what we're trying to achieve. I know our customers. Um, and so uh, when we get together to work on a perfume, yeah, it's, it's a really nice kind of meeting point where um, he can bring the technical expertise and the, the creative the, from the perfume perspective and I can kind of bring um, 
Yes, he laughs. I always come with mood boards, <laughs> you know, but um, we have a totally different skill sets, so it's good. Coming to your background in wine making or the wineries, is that something that helps in that relationship, talking about, you know, scents and talking about fragrances and talking about how to create something like that? How would you say the your background translates into the work with your partner in Sao Paulo? Yeah, I think it, it's been a help in so many ways, my background in wine. And I think there are a lot of similarities. It's funny, um, Isaac's backup, so he's he's from New Zealand. He's the only master perfumer from the whole Australasia region right. ever. Okay. <laughs> Very cool wow. guy. Um, and his backup, if he couldn't find a way to be a perfumer, so there's there are, there's only 50 or something master perfumers in the world, so it's this very small group. Um, his backup was to do winemaking, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. We both had this kind of uh, triangle of interests, wine, perfume, and architecture. And I think um, they all sit at the intersection of art and science, mm -hmm. um, and they're all about building something. You know, and so I think a lot of the way that we approach our perfume making and, and what makes us different from others in the industry is that we really start with the ingredients. I always say, you know, in wine, they say you can't make a good wine with bad grapes. You know, a chef would tell you the same thing. Right. Um, and so we, when Isaac and I sit in the laboratory together, um, we're more like a chef at the market. You know, like, oh, look at these ripe tomatoes. They're just perfect today. You know, like, what should we make with them? Um, and that's that's kind of how we start. So we find the most beautiful ingredients and then we create a fragrance around that. Whereas traditionally with a perfume, it's more, um, I would say most perfumes are created to match a, a, a creative brief, you know, mm -hmm. in the same way. Um They define you know, the end goal or the yeah, vision exactly, of this product exactly. and then they try to, to come as close as yeah, possible. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And we've done that with one perfume, I would say, more than the others, and that was Pink Iris, which is our the, the perfume we launched this year. And it was low, like way and above the most difficult to work on, I think, because I had this thing in my head that we had to create this classic, beautiful floral, mm -hmm. you know, and from the get-go, Isaac was saying, like, fuck, we don't need to do a floral, it's not us, it's not Avil, it's not contemporary, and, you know, and um, so the whole that was the most fraught creative process it took three years to develop that perfume <laughs> i'm really happy with the result like and i think i'm more proud in a way than with the other fragrances because it was such a challenge but yeah it, it definitely went against the grain of our creative journey mm -hmm. um yeah when you flip it and say what, what's the positive thing about it it's probably that you again it's a, it's a constraint and constraints can also fuel your creativity in a way that you have to adapt to certain new circumstances and even though it's it might just quote unquote come off your head, top of your head right yeah. and, and a feeling of okay we have to do it this way now or another way now yeah. yeah i'm a big believer in that we often get asked um 
don't we find working with only naturals too limiting? Mm-hmm. You know, because if you work with uh, the whole perfume palette, there's something like 5,000 ingredients. If you mm-hmm. work with uh, naturals, it's around three to 400, mm-hmm. you know. And so often in the perfume world, I get asked, uh, don't you find that constraining? And I always say, <laughs> I think, yeah, um, constraint breeds creativity. So right. for us, it's I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just very pragmatically, how how can I imagine... You because there is is there a market where you can go and and smell the ripe oranges or <laughs> how how does this work? Isaac works for Sunrise, which is a it's a German company. Um, it's one of the five big fragrance houses in the world, and so we're really lucky. Like when I first approached Isaac to work with them, I didn't know any of this. You know, I was totally new to the industry. Um, but if we were having to go out and source all of our ingredients ourselves, it would be almost impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that would be a, a full time job in itself. Um, so we work with Sunrise um, on sourcing all of our ingredients. And so actually, we're super lucky. They. They're they're very sustainability led, and they also um, have a big focus on raw materials and also naturals. So we can work with their lab technicians. You know that we can work with the latest natural science that they're already investing in. Um, but no, we sit together in Paris in the lab, and mm. one of his lab technicians just brings us out whatever we want. <laughs> so we're very, it's more like they roll it, it like in paradise. for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paradise of being yeah. for creative. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. What is then the main difference of your product compared to what uh, he usually develops? Like the this, ingredients. Yeah, it's, it yeah. comes down to the ingredients. Um, I mean, he works on some big commercial. He just did a perfume for Zara, for example, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, Shakira, he's mm-hmm. in Brazil. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. um, And for him, he always says that, you know, he considers himself like a songwriter. And, you know, day to day, he's working on a lot of top of the pop hits. You know, for Abel, we're like his indie punk rock band. Right. You know, mm-hmm. he can be creative. So it's the ingredients, but it's also the fact that we're not trying to create perfumes that are loved by everyone, you know. And with a conventional perfume, uh, normally it will go to thousands of focus groups before decisions are made. And I don't know, focus, it's like... You know, to win in a focus group, you have to be insanely generic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we don't try to be like other fragrances, mm-hmm. but also I think the ingredients stand us apart anyway. Mm-hmm. Talking about that m- kind of mainstream perfume industry and, and the, the market which is out there, then just from an outside perspective, you can see something is moving into the direction of more kind of identity-based brands, also from the bigger Uh, companies um, which pay more attention to how is this uh, not over advertised but more of a niche product and trying to get also into that sphere of super high-end super brand experiences if you say Le Labo for example it's like I think they started out initially as an independent house but were bought or something um, yeah, they were bought by Estee Lauder, right. but they were independent for, I'd say, maybe nearly 10 years. Mm. So they're they're older than most people think. I right. think most people only discovered them once they were Estee Lauder. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And what do you think about that? Because one on one hand, you can say, okay, they had this great 
perfume house for uh, for 10 years and uh, they were working on you know good stuff and then someone comes along buys this and now now they have on the positive side maybe a very big lever to to make that international and to make that available and and to have showrooms around the world and you know just scale that is it something which is attractive to you in a sense of how abel could see the future or is it something you would say okay this is not this is not our not our beer yeah look i'll be 100 honest with you um running a business is difficult you know and so and it doesn't matter you know if the business is going well that only adds more uh strain you know financial strain so our biggest challenge one of our biggest challenges has been trying to fund the growth you know of a product-led business that's super difficult and so yeah like some days I think god it would be nice to sell our business <laughs> you know because sometimes you just are tired you know I, I if I'm the only business owner that feels this way but I feel like there will be others I think sometimes it just feels relentless you know but the truth is I started the business to um I started as a way of life kind of you know and I, I didn't start it to make money um, so then selling it in order to have money, uh, like it doesn't have very much appeal for me. What I really want to do is to find a way to run the business that it feels a little bit less relentless and a little bit less, uh, yeah, stressful, I guess, in a way. So that's kind of where I want to take the business right. actually. Maybe that means I need, um, I've been holding off with finance. <laughs> We've been kind of hustling our way through um, this long. And maybe that means that we need um, partners or investment in some way to create the infrastructure that we can grow in a more kind of, I don't know, safe way or something. Um, but selling the business... Yeah, I don't know. Isaac, our perfumer, is friends with the Lilabo guys. They were ex-Sunrise, the mm -hmm. company I told you about. Mm -hmm. And I know one of them is, you know, he lives in California and surfs every day now, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> maybe there is attraction in that. But yeah. I actually love what I do, mm -hmm. you know. And so I would prefer to find a way to continue to love and grow with what I do than to sell it in order to do something else. Right. Make it sustainable for you as well yeah, as a person. Yeah, exactly. Or as a I think owner. you know, if it's about, uh, do you want to sell a business in order to be happy? I would rather be happy doing the business. Has this also then, I guess, a lot to do with uh, your decision to move the business from Amsterdam to New Zealand, where you grew up and where your roots are, and also take the people with you? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? big change yeah. for, for Abel. Yeah, it is a big change. Um, I don't know how big a change it's going to be, you know. So for the short term, in theory, nothing has to change, actually. You know, we have a um, production and distribution set up in a way that um, it doesn't have to change. But I see a real opportunity for Abel um, where, you know, we can put down roots in New Zealand in a way that, Maybe it's different if you're from Europe and you live in a different European city because you're quite close to home. Living here, um, but coming from New Zealand, we've always known that should something happen, you know, like a family member get really sick, 
we would probably pack up bags and move, you know? And so that's always for, you know, best part of a decade that's been in the back of my head that that could happen. Um, so I've also set the business up that way. But the beauty of going home is I have all these dreams, you know, of creating like going back to my winemaking as well and creating like the the perfume equivalent of a boutique winery and hotel and you know like how cool would that be if we can grow some of our own um, ingredients and produce it on the site mm-hmm. um, I don't know my mum does a lot of ceramics you know if we could have someone doing like hand making our ceramics on site for the cap lids and things like that you know I think um, there's going to be so many opportunities for the business to evolve in New Zealand that. Uh, you know, it could happen in Amsterdam, of course, but maybe it's my reluctance to to really put roots here that that has meant that it couldn't happen that way here. To see the company as a platform in, in yeah, that way. Yeah, I do. I mean, we're moving to Wellington and when I was there a f- six months ago, um, it felt like there were more microbreweries in Wellington than, like, I don't know, cars. Um, and I thought, how cool if we can, amongst the microbreweries, we can create this micro-perfume factory. You know, like, so I I kind of, I see all these ideas, which is yeah. exciting. Yeah, Which is a inspiring way to look at it because you have the freedom to decide that way, right? Yeah. There's no one holding you back and saying, okay, this is, not going to happen we're going to replace you with another person just to run the businesses like financially sustainably exactly um which is why i've hustled so long <laughs> without finance yeah. and just before we talked a bit about what comes first in in when when thinking about the future of a business and we dove into that you can also like one way to go about it is to view the business from a financial angle and make your decisions according to that set of okay, what brings the most profit in the end? And the other way would be to view it through the product or through uh, view it through the brand. Um, from your way going forward now, relocating to New Zealand, what do you think? Has this always been the way that you maybe not have the financials as your, as your primary decision-making uh, filter in that sense? Or is that something that changes now over time as well? No, it's always been the way. Um, like I say, I really didn't, you know, we sold a house in order to fund it. <laughs> it's not a money it making. sounds crazy. <laughs> you know, at the time I remember talking with Isaac, our perfume, and he was like, don't sell your house. You can't, like, you know, this right. is so stupid and yeah. risky. Um, so we didn't do it to make money. Mm. Um, I mean, you have to make money. Sorry. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. the double-edged sword. You have to make money to stay alive as a business. So it's finding that balance. But I think more and more, the longer I do the business, um, I realize where I get the joy, mm-hmm. you know, and the joy is not from a huge order. That's a buzz, don't get me wrong. Like if a huge order comes in or a big new customer, that's exciting. Um, but um, we're fades the... Fades quickly. Yeah, it fades quickly, yeah. honestly. Yeah. You know, like within four minutes probably. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, whereas where we get the real joy is, you know, hearing about a new store that we opened in that is... You know, like my colleague was in New York uh, last week or the week before, and we've just gone into two new stores there, um, Totokalo and Need Supply. And they're like for us earlier in the year, I was in New York and I said, 
those are two stores that I want to be in, you know? And so for me, yeah, so those kind of things bring joy in a different way. And that's not, they're not stores that are going to sell a lot of perfume, you know? They're, um, yeah, when you start out, what is it that you want to achieve? And I think so the creative process brings me joy and staying true to, yeah, I don't know, the, the kind of spirit of the brand, that brings joy. So... What was your question? Finance. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, clearly it's not, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it has to, it's like I say, you can't ignore it for a second. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. You take your eye off the financial side of the business and you're fucked, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I hate how much time I spend on that side of the business. You know, at the moment it's probably a quarter of my time is taken up with, um, yeah, money-related stuff. And as a small company, you integrated, for example, giving back in with an initiative like 1% for the Planet, which maybe other founders would say we're not there yet to kind of give back. And you decided early on to integrate that even though you say you're hustling, you're yeah trying to make it. How do yeah. you make a decision like this to say, okay, we're maybe not there yet, but I want to integrate this into the business yeah I, the the one percent um i mean the truth is we were doing that before i was paying myself a salary so <laughs> i guess it's priorities um i was on holiday and i was reading um the patagonia book probably like loads of other business founders out there and i'd always said that we were already doing like um giving a meal for every bottle we sold um, but the contribution of that is much less. We've been doing that for a few years now. Um, and I'd always thought, yeah, I'll do 1% or, you know, more focused kind of giving as soon as we're like turning a proper profit. And then reading his book on holiday, I, I kind of thought, actually, there's just no excuse. You know, you can look at, we pay so many bills. You know, if you look at 1% like a tax, it's just an environmental tax. Like it's kind of the lowest denominator in a way. Like if every business just had to do that and if all that money went into planting trees, you know, we might be in a bit of a reverse, um, global reverse situation. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. Just trusting your gut, I guess. Mm. Can you, do you think about putting a name on the way you run that business? If you just summarize, you know, having that holistic view and trusting your gut with business decisions and um, I don't know, having your intuition guide you through how products are, are made, not focus groups. Do you think about what, what, what would be a good name for, for that kind of new way or a different way of running a business? I don't know, maybe mindful or something. Um, the truth is if I'm stuck on a business decision, I kind of like to think, what, looking back in 10 years' time, what will I be proud of, Mm. you know, in terms of the decision I made? And I think that's, that's kind of an easy way to look at it, you know, if, if it feels like something you will be proud of in 10 years' time, it's the right call, you know, even if it, um, some, if it's a risky decision, you know, even if it goes wrong, uh, still in hindsight, you look back and say, okay, Maybe it wasn't the smartest, but I did it for the right reasons, you know? And I think if I don't ever want to make decisions that I didn't make for the right reasons, yeah. but I, I don't know what I'd call it. <laughs> right, yeah. 
we're struggling with intuition well. led or something mm. like aware yeah. conscious mm. all those uh, like so the worst thing is that they're all buzzwords right now so sure. Sure. it yeah. kind of feels it detracts from the meaning but mm. on their own they're all really invaluable words mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah because if you think about it then what it is i think it should be and it could be common sense when when a human is behind uh, a business decision and not a corporation right if, yeah. if you can track that down to a, to a single yeah. person then you you could say okay this person uh, acted this way and decided this way so it's very easy to judge but uh, since there's so much connected to it yeah mm. yeah so the dehumanizing yeah. of corporations is probably one one reason why this uh I think that. Yeah. I think when you see where things have gone wrong, it's not like one evil person made a horrible decision. It's a whole bunch of people made small decisions that mm. they were not connected to, you mm. know, and nobody saw the bigger picture, perhaps. Yeah. 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 No alignment between all the mini decisions taken along the way. Yeah. Mm. And it's very easy to, to point fingers to big business and say, okay, that's, that's bad and other things are good, but... Um, Yeah, that could be one question to to kind of take home is how can we humanize the business decisions in a way that they are responsible, that people are responsible for, for one decision that, that a corporation makes? Probably. Yeah. Oh. I mean, the Dutch have a very, um, the polder decision-making process, which, you know, it's very old, but maybe it's a really interesting um, kind of case study for... Um, Because I understand, I'm also not anti-corporation, you know. Um, maybe there's a way in which before decisions are made, like groups from the society within that business are all given a chance to kind of argue it out, you know. And at least that way um, it would bring issues to the table, I think. Um, and like you say, humanize it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to zoom out a bit, and you talked about the hotel or the pottery or the winery <laughs> i mentioned this to someone and now I, our u.s distributors when, when are you opening a hotel I was like, jesus <laughs> oh, christ <laughs> what did i say uh, 25 years <laughs> <laughs> what is your yeah i'm not asking you for a dream plan but what what would the things be that that spark joy within the next years Yeah, I think um, things like this, you mm. know, I've got this kind of vision of um, transforming some old factory into like a little micro perfumery where people can come and have a glass of uh, wine or a beer and smell some perfume. Maybe we have growing some things there. I don't know. Like, so for me, that feels like a, a tangible short term You know, not short term, like the next six months, but maybe the next two years, maybe three years. Realistically, I think um, we're not in a hurry. So I also want to, you know, for this move, I want to take my time, you know, like, let's wait for the right space. It'll find us, mm. I think. Um, so, yeah, something like that, I think could be really cool. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or maybe just tell someone about it. You can find all episodes on theidealists.co. As always, here's our last question. Who should we talk to next? Our kind of original creative director, Joachim. Do you know Joachim? No, Joachim Bahn. I think he's... Um 
He's a creative, but um, someone who has, yeah, if not a business brain, a very holistic, wants to look at the entire process. Um, and I think he's got some super interesting ideas and thoughts and amazing cool guy. And I think, yeah, you should talk to him.